Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Um, Lord, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray that as we get into this gospel, into this book, that you would open up our hearts and our ears and our eyes to, to see, to understand, and to apply these great truths to our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I decrease now so that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way this morning and that your people would not hear me or see me, but hear you, God, and, and see you in your word. Lord, you know, I pray this every time I speak, because ultimately you must be seen. Ultimately, your word must be heard. And ultimately, Lord, you must be glorified. Only you must be glorified. So, Lord, pr I pray that you do that. In Jesus name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, I do want to say good morning to you, and I do want to thank you for being here this morning. I'm really excited to uh, to study through this gospel of the book of John. And I pray that as we study through this gospel, that uh, great joy and understanding would be brought to your hearts and to your minds as we go through this gospel. Um, I have been encouraged by your growth over the summer, especially. I've been encouraged by your growth, by your maturity. I heard an individual that said about our church to say that if there is something good happening in our church, then why, where are all the people? And my immediate response is we do not measure a good and effective church by the amount of people that we can pack into this place. Remember that a good church and a good pastor is measured by how mature and Christ like the people are. Not by how many people are in the church, but how Christ-like those people are in the church. And I can see amongst big churches, you have a lot of people, but none of them are following the example of Christ. And then also a pastor who's doing what God has commanded, feeding the flock, and feeding the flock, the word of God, not being your best friend, not being your CEO, not being the most um, interesting or creative person, but feeding you the word of God. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. And as you grow and mature in Christ, you show evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you and you prove the effectiveness of this ministry, that it is simply feeding you the word of God. Thereby, you are growing. That's what we pray for. So as we travel through this gospel together, I ask that the Holy Spirit enlighten your eyes to see the truth and empower you to live out all that is seen and found throughout the pages of this sacred book. This will be the second book that we are endeavoring by the grace of God to expound upon. And we pray that as you go through this book, as you go through this gospel, that you will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This morning, I'd like to do a few things. I'd like to give you maybe a longer than I expected drawn out introduction of this book uh, or this letter, uh, who the author is, the date, the purpose of the writing. And then I'd like to speak to you about what is known as the prologue of this of this book. And so let's stand together as we read the word of God. We're going to read verses one through 18. I am reading this morning out of the New American Standard. I usually read out of the ESV, um, but this morning I'll be reading out of the New American Standard. We're going to be reading verses one through 18. Verses one through 18 is known as the prologue. Verse one in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend it. That's a bad translation, but we'll get to that. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which was which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, this is he who of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Father, we pray that you add a blessing to the reading of this word, and we pray that you would enlighten our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The author, John never identifies himself as the author of this book. However, church history and the early church establishes the testimony that John is the author of this book. We know that John is the author of this book because, again, of the early church testimony and because of the early church fathers. Their testimony was backed up, especially by a man named. This is important. Catch it if you're taking notes and listen. You should be taking notes unless you know everything about the book of John. Take notes. Amen. Show me your pens real quick. I love that. There was an early church father whose name was Irenaeus. His name was Irenaeus, who explicitly named John as the author of this book. Now, Irenaeus is valuable to us. He's a valuable witness because Irenaeus was a disciple of a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp is important to us because Polycarp was a disciple of John. So between John and Irenaeus, there's only one generation or one person or one one gap. And it is important that we recognize that that small gap is credible witness for us to take Irenaeus's testimony that John is the author of this book. Church fathers and church leaders after Irenaeus also held to the testimony that this book was written by John and they recognized this as being true. The earliest portion of scripture that we have found to date is a tiny, small portion or, or piece of the book of John. It's a credit card sign or size. It is called P52 and it's a piece of John chapter 18. And it dates back as early as A.D. 130. So as far back as A.D. 130, we have a credit card size piece of the book of John. Um, or it could actually even be earlier. John is mentioned 20 times in the other Gospels, known as the Synoptic Gospels. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But John himself is never mentioned in this Gospel. Instead, John chooses to identify himself in another, in another way. 
he identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, I know that if you and I had a choice of naming yourself John or Philip or whatever versus the one that Jesus loved, I think I would choose the latter rather than the former. He is blown away by the fact that he is loved by Christ. This is the same John who, in John chapter 13, leaned against the back or leaned back against Jesus while they were having the Last Supper and asked Jesus, who was the one that would betray him? This is the same John who was entrusted to care for the mother of Mary while they both sat at the foot of the cross. And Jesus says, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. This is the same John. John was the, the younger of two sons of the fa- and their father was a man by the name of Zebedee. We say that he is the younger of the two sons because whenever James, his brother, and John are mentioned, James is always mentioned first. John is mentioned second, meaning that they were probably indicating who was the older of the two. Their father, Zebedee, was a, a prosperous fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. He owned his own boats. He hired his own servants. John's mother was a woman by the name of Salome. This is found in Mark 15 and Matthew 27, who also gave into the ministry of Jesus and who also, this is very interesting, may have been the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which would make Salome, Jesus's aunt, which would make James and John possibly the cousins of Jesus. It's also Salome, the mother of James and John, who asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 20 if her sons could sit at his right hand and his left hand when he enters into the kingdom. She obviously was trying to get some kind of family, uh, family credit since they may have been related. Possibly, but not necessarily uh, fact, by the, uh, by the way. We see first, we see that John is first mentioned in the scriptures as a a, a, uh, a disciple of John the Baptist. When we first see John, he is following John the Baptist. When John the Baptist points out that Jesus is the savior of the world, John the beloved automatically leaves John the Baptist to be a follower of Jesus. Along with his brother James and Peter, John is one of known what, what is what is what is he is one of what is known as the big three. James, Peter and John were Jesus's closest companions. And after the resurrection, James, Peter and John became the leaders of the church of Jerusalem. Clement of Alexandria tells us that John spent his last days or the last decades of his life in a place called Ephesus. And he was overseeing the churches there and that surrounding region. It was in Ephesus that John wrote this gospel. It was in Ephesus where John wrote first John, second John and third John. And toward the end of his life, Irenaeus tells us that John was banished to an island called Patmos. And it was while he was on this island that John received these visions from God that are written down today known as Revelation. Not revelations. Revelation. Amen. In the epistle of John, in this epistle, John speaks not just the epistle, but all of the epistles, all of the writings of John. John speaks of love 80 times. Therefore, he is known as the apostle of love. John, in spite of him being known as the apostle of love, had a very fiery temper. So much so that Jesus named James and John sons of thunder. And they lived up to that name. 
On one occasion, these two brothers became so angry because a village refused to receive Jesus that they asked their over. They asked Jesus for for power or for the permission to call down fire from heaven on that village because they refused to believe in Christ. They said in Luke uh, 9:54, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and to consume these people? This is the same apostle who is known as the apostle of love. Obviously, he must have mellowed over time, and this is only something that the Holy Spirit can do. Clement of Alexandria tells us a story of how John was also passionate about truth. That he fearlessly entered a a band of robbers camp. The captain, who was once a man who professed his faith in Christ, was leading these, these band of robbers John goes into the camp and he meets with this man, sits with him, and he leads that man to repent and also to return back to his following Christ. He's also a person that, again, as I said, is concerned with truth. He speaks about truth 40 to 50 times in his writings. Polycarp tells a story in which John was going in to take a bath into a bathhouse and he learned that there was a, a heretic there by the name of Serentius in the bathhouse. John, upon seeing Serentius, the heretic in the bathhouse, runs out of the bathhouse without taking a bath and screams out, run, fly away, because this bathhouse might fall down on a person who tells lies, a person who is the enemy of truth. That's how passionate that John was for truth. John loved truth. And could you blame him? He lived with truth for three and a half years. John was not just a Jew, but he was a Palestinian Jew. He knew the Jewish customs. He knew the, the locations of all the things that he spoke about in his writings. John was also an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He was a, an apostle or a disciple of Jesus and one of Jesus's closest companions. And John was inspired to write by the Holy Spirit, the gospel that we are reading today. These things and so much more give John the authority to write down scriptures and also give us the authority to claim those as being inspired by God. There's nothing specific about the date itself. We, we don't really know exactly when this was written. Some say that it was before the fall of Jerusalem. Some say that it was between A.D. 80 and A.D. 90. We do know this. It was after the death of Peter because he mentions the way in which Peter would die later on in the book of John. We don't know if it was after the fall of the temple or before the fall of the temple. And the reason why we say that is because he doesn't mention the fall of the temple and it is a big deal. And if he doesn't mention it, maybe it has happened so far in the future or so far in the past that it's no longer relevant, or maybe it hasn't happened yet, which is why he hasn't mentioned it. No one really knows. But we do know that he wrote this gospel while living in Ephesus, and he was also aware of what is known as, we're going to get to this in a moment, the synoptic gospels. John's gospel is unique. It's not like Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. Okay, that's important for us to know. Synoptic comes from the Greek word that means to see together, 
The reason why it is known as the synoptics, because you can put them together and there are so many similarities between the two. There is uh, there is uh, a, a, a way of seeing these together in which they are very much alike. But John's gospel is very different. In the synoptics, they follow the same general outline of Christ's life. They have similar contents, a similar structure and a similar perspective. As you read John, you'll see that they are very different, that this is very different from the other three. The synoptics, they contain a mixture of narrative history. John's gospel contains a higher portion of discourse in narrative more than so the synoptics. It's, it's almost like a heavenly view of Christ rather than an earthly view of Christ. Listen to this. In John's gospel, there are no parables, narrative parables. There are no no end time speeches, meaning there are no all of it discourses or things like that. There are no exercising of demons or healing of lepers. There is no list of the 12 disciples. There's no institution of the Lord's Supper. There is no birth of Jesus, no no baptism of Jesus, no transfiguration of Jesus, no temptation of Jesus, no garden of Gethsemane in which Jesus agonizes. And there is no ascension of Jesus in the Gospel of John. But you find all of those in the synoptics. Ninety percent of what you see in the book of John is not found in the other Gospels. Two things are important to note about the statement that I just made. The differences are not contradictions. And just because we see a difference in this gospel does not mean it contradicts the synoptics. Number two, the differences between the two must not be exaggerated, meaning both John and the synoptics present Jesus Christ as the son of man, the Messiah, the son of God and God in human flesh. All four of the synoptics, all, all three of the synoptics and the gospel of John. They picture or point to Jesus as the Savior who came to save his people from their sins. What's the purpose of this writing? John is the only of the four Gospels that actually points out a precise statement of why he's writing. Let's go to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Some of you maybe feel like you're in a lecture right now and maybe you are. It's important for you to understand the context of what we are looking at. And it's also important for you to understand uh, the word of God to its full extent. John chapter 20, verse 30 says this. But these things or these have been written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John is telling you exactly why he's writing. And he's the only one of all the four gospels that does this. John in this statement is both an apologist. And an evangelist, he uses the word, the verb to believe nearly 100 times in his gospel. Obviously, John wants you to believe something. This is more than twice as much as we find in the synoptics. 100 times in this gospel alone versus all three synoptics. John is saying, believe, believe, believe. He wants you to believe something. He is writing with the hopes that. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be moved to believe in Christ. But John doesn't want you to just believe anything. He wants you to be convinced of one thing, especially the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So 
Led by the Holy Spirit, John sets out to make a clear case for who the person of Jesus Christ is. The person who is worthy of being believed. And he starts out with a bang. He presents Jesus Christ as God incarnate or God in the flesh. John chapter 1 verse 1. He presents him as the Messiah or the Christ. John 1 41. He presents him as the savior of the world. The one who is going to take away the sins of his people. John 4 42. And in short, John is presenting Jesus as the eternal word. The Messiah, the son of God through whom or through his death and his resurrection brings the gift of salvation to all of his people. Verses 1 through 18, as we said previously, is known as the prologue. A prologue is this. It is an opening to a story that establishes the setting and gives the background with some details. Some earlier stories uh, maybe are told in the process they are eventually pointing to the main story. Sometimes you'll see a movie and they give you a little bit of a story to explain the story. That's known as the prologue. And that is exactly what John is doing here in verses 1 through 18. The prologue that we see in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is the birth of Jesus. That's their prologue. That's how they begin their story. And that's what leads them into the main story of the life and death of Jesus Christ. But there is no portion in the New Testament that has captured the imagination, and the attention of the Christian community, especially for the first three centuries after the ascension of Christ. Then this prologue here, the early church was desperately trying to find out who is Jesus, who was Jesus. You've heard I've heard many debates in which they say the early church was not concerned with salvation by grace. The early church was not concerned with these doctrines of grace that you're speaking about because the early church is still trying to figure out who was Jesus. Who was this man? And they were consumed with what I just read to you in verses 1 through 18. The prologue became the main place of discussion among those lines within the first three centuries of the church. The prologue, verses 1 through 18, has such a high view of Christ that the early church developed what is called the Lagos Christology. Or the understanding that Christ is the very word that is spoken here in John chapter 1. The very one that John is introducing, the very word that was with God, that is God, that was nothing was made without him is Christ, the word. As the scripture says in verse one of chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But we must ask this question before we even get into exegeting verses one through five, which we'll do next week. Why does John begin his gospel with this prologue? Why does John take the opposite route of every other gospel and say what he says in these first 18 verses? Why doesn't he take the direction of Matthew, Mark or Luke? The other gospels begin with Jesus as a baby, where in the gospel of John, Jesus is already an adult. I believe that the main reason why John begins with this prologue is because John has a goal in his writing. And I believe that the Holy Spirit led John to write this gospel in order to make a case for the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is this man? John 20 verse 30 again says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written or I am writing this again, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he's writing. 
That's the whole purpose from verses one all the way to the end of the book. It's so that you may be a follower as he was a follower. John is not interested in being a biographer of Jesus. He's not trying to to tell you from beginning to end. Instead, he just wants to display the truth of Christ so that we may become disciples of Christ. So before John begins to talk about the life and the ministry of Christ, he gives us a look at the credentials of Christ. And he tells us who this Jesus is. John starts by telling us where he's from. And he does not say, ultimately, he's from Bethlehem. Instead, he gives us an idea of where Jesus is really from. The New Testament uses many titles for Jesus. The title that appears most often is Christus or Christ, which means Messiah. As a matter of fact, the word Christ is used so many times that people think that that's the last name of Jesus. It's the first name of Jesus. Last name is Christ. This is not his last name. It's a title that has been given to Christ. Jesus Christ is the affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. And it is interesting that even non-believers, atheists even, will attribute him or give him the title Christ and at the same time not believe that he is the Christ. The second most frequently given title to Jesus is Lord. And this title is at the heart of the earliest Christian creed in which they declare Jesus is Lord. The third most used title, not by people, but by Christ himself. Is son of man. I believe if you were to ask Jesus today, who are you? His response would be, I am the son of man. Many people think think that when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he is identifying himself with humanity. And that while that may be true to a certain extent, the title that Jesus uses to attribute himself is not mainly to identify himself with humanity. When Jesus calls himself the son of man in front of Jewish people, a first century audience, he was saying something that they very well did understand. Ask any first century Jew living in Jerusalem, what does the son of man mean or what is the title son of man? And they will ultimately or usually, if they're a good student of their word, take you to Daniel chapter seven. You should go there. And I'll read it while you're going there. Daniel said in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And here is the son of man. He came to the ancient of days, which is God and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel describes a heavenly being, one who from the very throne of God comes and comes on a mission to judge the world. When Jesus spoke to people in that first century and when he speaks to us today as we're reading his word, when we see that reference of son of man, Jesus is saying, behold, that is me. The one who was prophesied in the book of Daniel, who comes with authority, who comes with glory, who comes with a kingdom. That is I. He was describing himself not only in terms of activity, meaning what he will do, but also describing himself in terms of where he is from. And he is telling us his hearers and them and us. that He explicitly has come from heaven. For example, on one occasion, Jesus said in John chapter 38, I have come down from heaven. 
not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Not ultimately from Bethlehem, not ultimately from Nazareth, not ultimately from Judea. I've come from heaven on a mission. John eight fifty eight. most assuredly, Jesus said, I say to you before Abraham was, I am, ego e me, I am. I am the same God who was spoken of in the book of Exodus. That is, how, that is who I am. The Jews immediately picked up stones to put him to death because they understood his message. Jesus was equating himself with God. Who had revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter three. He says, I am who I am. And I've heard a false teacher say when Jesus says, I am who I am, he's basically saying, I am whoever you need me to be. No, that's not true. He's not saying I am whoever you want me to be, who I am, whoever you need me to be. He is saying, I am the great I am. I am the ultimate. There is none like me. It's not about you. It's about me. In Matthew chapter nine, we see Jesus forgive the sins of a man who was paralyzed. The Pharisees became indignant because they said, who can forgive sins except God alone? And Jesus said in Matthew chapter nine, why do you think evil in your hearts? For what is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has The authority on earth to forgive sins, which only God can do because he is God. He said then to the paralytic, rise, pick up your mat and go home. And the man immediately rose and went home. These son of man statements were by no means statements of humility. I'm going to say that again. They were by no means statements of humility. They were statements of authority. They were statements of let me tell you who I am and where I'm from. Don't get it twisted. Just Jesus is not this lowly person who just says, yes, I am lowly. He is a person coming on a mission with authority and power. He openly declared to everyone, I am from heaven. I am he who has come down from heaven. And John's prologue was intended to accomplish that goal. This is he who came down from heaven. This is no ordinary man. This is no soothsayer. This is not a man who is just an upright man. This is not a man who just loved people and performed good deeds. This is not a man who was primarily or ultimately from Bethlehem, Nazareth, Judea, or any part or any other part of this lowly earth. This is the God man. This is the man who existed, the God man, the God who existed before time. He is part. He became part of his creative order. And nothing in all of creation was created apart from him. He is that man. He is that one, that great ancient of days. This is he. He is God who's come down from heaven on which the throne he reigned. He stepped down from his own throne. Not believing or thinking that it was something that needed to be held on to Philippians chapter two. But he stepped down knowing that he would lose no equality with God in order to come and save his own. This is how the story begins. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was nothing made that was made. And in him was the life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the beginning of our story. It is these five verses that we will expound upon next week. I need you to get a good grasp of where we're going for a long time. So get comfortable, buckle up, take notes and be ready to go through this gospel. Be ready for the Lord to work on your hearts 
and on your minds as you see Christ for who he is. Next week, we will expound upon the first five verses of this chapter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just an introduction to who you are. You are the great I am. You are the son of man who comes down with authority and power. Who comes even with the kingdom. As you said, the kingdom of God is near, is at hand. Lord, when you came, that kingdom began. And it has been established even to this day. And Lord, we pray together, come, Lord, and establish your eternal kingdom. Come, Lord, quickly. Come, Lord, quickly. Whatever part of the millennium you fall on, I believe we can all agree on, come, Lord, quickly. I pray that as we continue to push forward and and move forward in this gospel, that you would work on the hearts and minds of men. That you would let them know that this is not a place where we come to be entertained. It's a place where we come to be fed. It's a place where we come to grow. And the primary source of growth is through his Holy Spirit inspired word. Lord, let us be a reflection of those who from times past depended and relied upon your word. As they do air to breathe and water to drink. That it would become a life source to us. That lights, cameras, and action would not be our life source, but that your word, that your spirit would be a life source to us. Lord, those who are here, that belong here, and that belong to you, I pray that you would keep them by your word. Those who are working out job situations so that they can be here, you know their hearts. I pray that you would open up those opportunities. Those who are desperately saying, I want to be in church. I pray that you would make a way in their their personal lives. So that the priority of hearing your word. Amongst the brethren and sisters. Would be possible in their lives. Those who are struggling right now, Lord, with their faith. Those who are struggling with the flesh. God, I pray that you would bring strength. I pray, God, that you would help by the power of your spirit to destroy the flesh. Lord, I pray that you be glorified in this church. As we move forward and maybe the next two years possibly of going through this gospel or more. I pray that this church would grow so much as a result. Lord, I thank you for these people. I thank you for giving me the, the privilege in honor of being a shepherd to the great shepherd, or an under-shepherd to the great shepherd, Lord. I pray that you would use me as we go through this book to be faithful in my own personal life and in the scriptures that you have given me the privilege and honor of presenting. Lord, keep me humble before you and before them. We entrust ourselves to you, Lord. And to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.